Well, thank you, uh, Jim and Brenda, for that uh, wonderful time of prayer. So last week, we introduced uh, a brand new series to you entitled It. And I wonder if maybe uh, this last week you were paying special attention to maybe it people or it circumstances that you uh, ran into. So today I'd like to um, discover once again what an it person or an it church looks like. Some churches have it, some churches don't. Some people have it, some people don't. When I was growing up, um, the kind of itness that I looked for in people around me was in two categories. One was in athletes, really good athletes, and the other was in uh, smart people. And I thought that I could find, um, if I hung around those kind of people, I could be it, maybe. And uh, now I've learned real quickly that around athletes, that um, they may be great athletes, but uh, the itness doesn't really come through in a lot of ways. Uh, sometimes the character is not what it should be, and these entitled, privileged, spoiled, silver spoon athletes sometimes just aren't the kind of people you want to be like. In fact, an itness, for instance, baseball. We're watching baseball now. And if you're a baseball player, one of the best in the world, still when you go up to the plate, you strike out 70% of the time. You lose 70% of the time. So it can't be an athlete. So I was left with the idea that, well, maybe to be it, you need to be a really, really smart person. Now, maybe you've heard of, how many of you have heard of an organization entitled Triple Nines? Anybody? out there? Anybody out there in the cyber world? Okay. Triple nines. Uh, That group, it's called Mensa, E-M-E-N-S-A, and that group are the top 99.9% in IQ in the world. So these are the smartest people in the world. And uh, the Washington Post, this is really fun, the Washington Post every year has what they call a Mensa Invitational. And uh, they ask readers to take any word from the dictionary, any word you want, alter it by adding, subtracting, or changing one letter, and one letter only, and then supply a new definition. Let me share with you some of the readers. Now, these are from the smartest people in the world, okay? Number one, intoxication. The definition, euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize that it was your money to start with. Okay, that's intoxication. How about this one? Reincarnation. Coming back to life as a hillbilly. Okay, maybe that's, uh, that's you. Here's another one. Bozone. The substance surrounding stupid people that stops bright ideas from penetrating. That's bozone. And I love this one. Uh, giraffiti. Giraffiti. Vandalism sprayed, spray painted very, very high. Okay, giraffiti. Inoculate. To take coffee intravenously when you're running late. And this one, this one is me all over the place. Hepatitis. Uh, that's terminal coolness, right? You know, that's, you know, well, I, I wish anyway, right? Uh, how about this? The Doppler effect. The tendency of stupid ideas to seem smarter when they come at you rapidly, okay? That's the Doppler effect. Uh, arachnoleptic fit. Arachnoleptic fit. The frantic dance performed just after we've accidentally walked through a spider web, okay? And then my favorite one is Beelzebub. Beelzebub, Satan in the form of a mosquito that gets into your bedroom at 3 in the morning and cannot be cast out. Okay, now these are from the smartest people 
in the world. It makes me think of a couple things. One is I'm not sure I want to be that smart. And the second thing is they have too much time on their hands. But smart people want to be a smart. Is that an it person? So one of the smartest people I've ever known uh, was a man, a professor at North Park Theological Seminary by the name of John Weborg. Uh, John Weborg uh, taught theology for many years at uh, North Park. And uh, he retired in 2011, but he was there teaching theology when I was a student back in the mid-70s. And uh, John is just, uh, he's still an adjunct professor at North Park, a wonderful man. He's in his 90s, just a really, really smart man. Well, so one day he was talking about theology, and he talks above your head, of course. And we were just kind of trying to figure out what he was talking about, and he was talking about uh, you know, this kind of theology and Lessing's Ugly Ditch and different things that we had no clue what he was talking about. But he was getting all excited. He said, when I talk about these things, he said, I get so excited uh, that I, I have goose pimps. And as soon as he said that, we kind of look around at each other. What he meant, of course, was goosebumps, but he said goose pimps. And so my friend um, Mick Murphy, who is an artist, started a drawing. So he drew a goose with a fedora, you know, a long jacket, gold chains, you know, and everything. Started passing that around, and we were laughing. And finally, John said, what are you guys laughing at? And we said, well, John, a little while ago, you said goose pimps, and here's the picture that Mick drew. We showed it to John. And the funny part was he still didn't get it. He had no idea what a pimp was. He just had no idea. So you could be really smart about a lot of things, but not, still not really have it. Last week we looked at the scripture and discovered that the most important characteristic or marker of an it person or an it church is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with wealth or education or athletic ability or merit or status or anything else. It is a person who has surrendered his or her life to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that lives within us. It is when you allow the Spirit to fill you, to wash over you, to overwhelm you with His presence and His power. Now that being understood, we are still, I believe, light years away from a clear and concise definition of it. But we can know some characteristics that are it characteristics from Scripture. So here are the qualities of itness that we can strive for. And these are the things we'll be looking for in the coming next weeks. Today we're talking about it is a passion for his presence. Next week, it looks like sincere integrity. It acts like down-to-earth humility. It is fueled by spirit-filled faith. It takes risks. It is seen in a deep desire to reach the lost for Jesus. And it experiences a heart of brokenness. We will investigate these it qualities from God's word in the coming weeks. So today we look at the it quality, a passion for his presence. So I want to unpack this by looking at two facets of having a passion for his presence. And the first is this. It is... Literally and profoundly being in his presence. Being in his presence. I want to give you an example from scripture from uh, Acts chapter 4. 
Now, uh, Peter and John are preaching and doing miracles, and uh, they're uh, arrested uh, by the Pharisees and Sadducees and the captain of the temple guard, and uh, they're thrown into jail, and they said, hey, listen, you guys have been preaching too much, and by this point, the scripture tells us in Acts 4 that, that uh, there are now over 5,000 men who are followers of Jesus. Now, just a little while ago, on Pentecost, there were 3,000. Now, when I say men, that's because the women and children weren't counted. So we're talking about 10, 12, 15,000 people, right, that are followers of Jesus by this point. And this is getting out of control as far as the Pharisees are concerned. The Pharisees say, man, this guy is getting well over his skis. We've got to get this thing under control. And so they threw Peter and John into jail. And he sat him in there. The next day, they brought out the A-team, uh, what they called the council. It was rulers, elders, teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees. And here's what they say. What are you guys doing? By what authority do you go around healing people? And there was a guy in the assembly who had uh, been crippled. And Jesus, the day before, had, or excuse me, uh, John and Peter, the day before, had healed him. And this guy's healed now. And he's standing over in the corner. And all these rulers, these council members, look, look at this guy. He's, he's healed. And Peter and John go, yeah, that's what Jesus does. He heals people. And they say, well, by what authority do you do And then they just proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Powerful teaching. He said, uh, uh, Peter said, the next day the council of the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. And Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preached his heart out. At the end of that message, this is what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note, they paid attention, they recognized, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's a remarkable passage of Scripture. Now, this guy that was healed, this crippled man, he's standing there, and everybody's looking around, and the Pharisees and the elders, the council said, man, we don't know what's going on, but there's something about the fact that these two men, Peter and John, hung around with Jesus for three years. And they even claim that Jesus is alive today, right? Because of the resurrection. We don't buy that, the council would say. But yeah, that's what they're saying. But this astonishing thing we're seeing, we think, this are the elders, right? This is the council. We think it's because these guys hung around Jesus for over three years. What was the source of Peter and John's itness? Courage? Well, certainly they had some of that power, of course. No, the thing that was really remarkable about them was that they simply and powerfully had been with Jesus. For three years they heard him, they saw him, they believed because they saw and experienced what Jesus did, what he said. They felt his heartbeat. They knew his heart in all of this. For three years they had walked with Jesus. They're schooling, all of the disciples with the exception of, of Luke and Matthew. Uh, their schooling was not graduate school, but they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now the word for unschooled, ordinary, that word in the Greek language is 
idiotes. How would you like to be described as one who is an idiotes? Well, that's what they were. These unschooled, they're not stupid or lacking intelligence, but common, ordinary, everyday men. And what was it that made them extraordinary? What was it that made them powerful? What was it that made them, the, the council astonished at these two men? It was simply this. They had been and continue to be because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within them, they continued to be with Jesus. Now you and I are ordinary men and women. I don't know that there's any triple nines in our church. If there are, she may be living in my house. Um, But uh, we are daily trying to make life work. We're just ordinary common people, right? We have talents and abilities that God has given us, but in general, we're common people ordinary people. Uh, We had, uh, in my church at Hope, we had a woman, her name was Donna Tafe. Uh, She was an elderly woman. Now, this was 20 years ago, and she was probably my age now, so go figure. But she was this remarkable little dynamo. She was about five feet, one inch tall. Uh, Her husband was ill, so she had to take care of him a lot, but uh, she was the head of our prayer ministry. And I'll tell you, she would, she would go to both of our services. When we were in the strip mall, we had to go to three services eventually to accommodate the people. And she would sit in my little office and she would pray for three hours, pray for each service. We had a prayer meeting every Tuesday night. This woman, uh, didn't, she finished the eighth grade of her education. She was married when she was 16. She started having babies and being a housewife and that's what she did for all of her life. But this woman, this common, ordinary woman, was one of the most remarkable Christ followers I have ever known. The power of the Holy Spirit in her life, the power of prayer that was this aura around her. I told you a couple of weeks ago about her when she took the whole service one time and talked about prayer for an hour, and then afterwards I saw her out in the parking lot, and she was leading two college-age girls to Jesus. She was common, She was ordinary, but by the power of the Spirit, she was an extraordinary person. The testimony of the early church was that Jesus recruited uneducated, mostly ordinary men and women. He he recruited them to do extraordinary things. Now, he did not recruit, I mean, let me tell you what he did recruit. He recruited fishermen, broken people, outcasts, a tax collector, prostitutes, many women, but even more telling than who he did recruit was who he did not recruit. He did not recruit Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, religious leaders, members of the Sanhedrin, educated, wealthy, not a single person from the safe, religious, traditional church was recruited. And I'll tell you why. They did not know the power of God, because they did not know Jesus. Many churches today are just like that. I think we would all recognize that there are churches that they know a lot about God and they talk a lot about God, but somehow, some way, the Spirit of the living God has not empowered that body of believers to do the work of Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus. And I think when I know a Christian like that, and I know a lot of Christians that have fallen away, uh, when, when you know someone like that, he, he, the first thing you realize is this. 
they've just stopped hanging around Jesus. They've just stopped being in the presence of Jesus. They've they've stopped opening the Word of God, which is Christ in written form. They've stopped praying. They've stopped meditating. They've stopped thinking about Jesus. Now, many churches are clean and polished and scrubbed up, especially now that you have to get all clean and everything ready for people to re-enter, but uh, it takes much more than that. It takes the presence of the Holy Spirit. It takes people who have been with Jesus. Because the church is not just a place to go and worship. The church is a hospital for the sick. It's a place for the discarded. Our mantra when I was at Hope was just come and hang out with us and hang out with Jesus and see what he wants to do in your life. We used to say, all we're asking you to do, and I think you've heard Pastor David say this probably many times, we're just asking you to figure out what it means for you as an individual to take one step closer to Jesus. Because that's always the answer. How close are you to Jesus? How near are you to Jesus? In Acts 4, these men turned the world upside down. People who have it are people who have been with Jesus daily, moment by moment, weekly, yearly. They have been in the presence of Jesus. People who have it are people who have been with Jesus, who have been transformed by his power. Now, the greatest example of this, and I mentioned him before, uh, but let's, let's go back, let's backtrack uh, about, about 60 days before what happened in Acts chapter 4. And this is around the time of the crucifixion. So Thursday night, uh, Jesus uh, is in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he's asked them to uh, watch and pray. And of course, they fall asleep. We know that. And, and so here comes uh, the temple guard uh, led by a Pharisee. The temple guard's coming to arrest Jesus. Now, the, 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 the Jews are trying to figure a way out to get rid of Jesus. So far, the government, Roman government hasn't done anything. They've just kind of said, ah, you guys take care of your own. This is a Jewish guy. You guys take care of that. And they haven't been able to do anything because so many people are following him, right? And so uh, he's in the garden, and, and the disciples start gathering around him, and they see this, this temple guard come marching up and everything. And Now, Peter has always been the guy right next to Jesus. You know, every time Jesus stood, he looked around. Oh, there's Peter again. He's right there standing next to him. Peter, what are you doing so close to me? You know, give me some social distancing. You know, and Peter was always just kind of crowding in, and he just wanted to be in Jesus' life, and he wanted, he was always first in line. He was always first to raise his hand. I mean, he was always ready to go. So here it comes. The temple guard comes. Peter's really ticked, right? He said, they're not going to arrest Jesus, man. They're not, not on my watch. And so, so he pulls out his sword. He takes a swipe, and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, uh, the, the, the high priest's servant. And, and Jesus goes, oh, great, Peter. Now I've got to heal this guy's ear, you know. And so he picks it up and does that deal. And so, so, and, but Peter's always ready to do whatever's right. Now, so they take Jesus away. Now they take him to Caiaphas's palace, okay, the, chief, the high priest. And, of course, he lived in an abundant, uh, affluent, uh, opulent, uh, opulent life. And it's this big palace. And, and so they took him in there, and they're going to try and figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. 
but they didn't want to martyr him. They didn't want to make him more popular than he was. And so they're in there. So there's this palace and then there's this big courtyard. And John, it's, the scripture tells us that John actually got into the courtyard so he could see what was going on. But Peter and the other disciples were outside this gate and there was this area outside the gate where the guards stood and there were some fire pots and people keeping warm and stuff like that. And that's where Peter was. So, you know what happened? Three times, once by a middle school girl, three times Peter is asked, Are you, aren't you one of that guy's followers? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Three times Peter denied it. Three times he said no. And then you remember the rooster crowed and... And Peter was downcast, and he was sullen, and he was hurt. And, okay, let me ask you this question. What was the difference? Peter that drew the sword? Peter that was always right next to Jesus? And Peter that was in this outer courtyard? What was the difference? Let me tell you what the difference was. This is going to sound corny, but it's true. A hundred yards. That's it. He was a hundred yards. As soon as there was distance between he and Jesus, he lost that power, that passion, that fervor. Now, let's pick it up. Peter stays really, he's ashamed. Uh, he doesn't know what to do. He's hiding in the shadows when the crucifixion takes place. He's still hiding. And then when the women discovered that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus said, hey, I want you to go and tell the disciples, but tell Peter specifically, to tell Peter, in other words, Peter, your redemption is just around the corner. Your forgiveness is just around the corner. And so Peter shows up, and then you see the, 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 the beautiful picture of Peter, uh, or the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is, uh, had built a fire, and he was making some breakfast, and he cooked some breakfast for the disciples. And that's when Jesus said, hey, Peter, come here. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, downcast, still kind of ashamed, said, Jesus, you, you know that I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three times he asked him, do you love me? Three times Peter said yes. And Peter was in that moment forgiven and just that sin was washed away. So now this power has returned because he's right next to Jesus. Uh Uh-oh, but what happens when Jesus goes to heaven? He's gone again. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up. He preaches to the crowd. 3,000 men were saved. Many women and children were saved that day. What's the difference? It's that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is literally the presence of Jesus Christ in your life by his Spirit. Don't put any distance between you and Jesus. That's what Peter learned. That's what we must all learn. If you want it, a church that has it, or you to have it, you simply and profoundly must just be with Jesus. Now there's a second facet to this, and it's this. A hungering for his presence. A hungering for his presence. That's more challenging. First Peter 2, 2 and 3. Like newborn babies crave or desire the pure spiritual work, milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you've tasted Jesus, now that you've experienced his presence, now that you've been washed by his blood, 
now that you have experienced a being born again into a life of richness and abundance and joy and forgiveness, once you've experienced that, continue to taste and taste and taste. It's a continual motion. It's not just, okay, I, I, I said my prayer. You know, I, I, I said the prayer, you know, the ABCs. I said, Jesus, come in my life. I did that back when I was six years old, so I'm good to go. No, no. Tasting, it's daily, moment by moment, tasting the goodness of God through his son, Jesus. Once you have been in the presence of the Lord, once you have tasted what it's like to be in Christ, nothing in the world that they can offer will ever be enough. So here's the question of the day. What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you crave? What have you come to believe will satisfy your soul? What is it that you believe that you cannot live without? In Matthew 5, 6, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus said these words, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. Well, what do you hunger and thirst for? What did the disciples hunger and thirst for? Certainly, they loved being in the presence of Jesus. But really, when you look deeply, Judas Iscariot, for instance, was a zealot. And his whole thing, his whole deal was politics. Man, he wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And uh, that, that, that stuff that Jesus said, yeah, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, well, that's all good stuff, but I want to overthrow the Roman government. And some of the other disciples had kind of bought into that line of thinking. They wanted freedom from the rule and power of Rome. And Jesus said, but I will set you free. They said, okay, well, let, let's do it. Let's get her done. So on the Sermon on the Mount, thousands of people are there. Jesus is ready to speak to the crowd. The disciples are going, oh man, this is going to be great. Maybe they paint their face blue like Braveheart and they're ready to go to battle, draw their swords like Peter. Let's go and let's overturn this. And what did Jesus say? He said, happy are the broken and the merciful. What? And the mourners and the meek and those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. What happened to our victory, Jesus? What happened to our freedom from the Roman rule? We want to be, we're hungry for victory, Jesus said. But I am the bread of life. We want freedom, Jesus said. I only have the power to set you free from sin. We want power, he said, not by your power, but by my spirit. But I hunger, I'm starving for a life that is abundant and exciting, Jesus said. I and the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. But I want, I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know what it means to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Everything about it is about I. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection in the life. I am it. Jesus said, you want that life? There's only one place to find it. You find it in me. Jesus was trying to communicate a fundamental, absolute truth, and it's this. If you are hungry, if you are thirsty, 
Jesus would say, I will be your bread. I will be your drink. Nothing else will satisfy. People with it, churches with it, recognize that a passion for his presence is about our daily hungering and thirsting after Jesus and recognizing that only Jesus can satisfy the emptiness in my soul. I was, uh, when I was doing the transition pastor job at Genesis Church uh, back in 2017, um, I taught, I was teaching a new members class after church one Sunday. And uh, th- up in this area, this is where um, Alice Cooper has uh, the rock and the youth center and it's connected to the Genesis Church. And it's really an awesome building, but there's a lot of homeless people in that area. And so at many times after church, there'd be homeless people hanging out. They'd want to come in and have some cookies and coffee. And of course, we'd always we'd have somebody go with them and help them and serve them and love on them. And this one guy uh, came and, uh, and his, he said his name was Jim. And Jim said that he was hungry. He said, hey, listen, we're going to have some lunch and then we're going to do this class, a new members class. You're welcome to come and join us for lunch. And then if you want to go, you can go. Or if you want to hang around, you're welcome to do that too. We're just going to talk about what it means to, you know, be a follower of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and this guy, you could tell he was in bad shape. Uh, his teeth were all rotten, I mean, from uh, using meth amphetamines. And, um, and so he came in, he had, uh, he had lunch with us. He was pretty cogent at, at this point. And, and after, after the lunch, I went over and said, hey, Jim, you, you want to hang around or do you, do you need to go? He said, no, I think I'll hang around. And so he did. And so after a while, I started talking about this very subject, about what it means to hunger and thirst for Jesus. And I said, does anybody have an example of that? <laughs> you know, this is every pastor's worst dream. The homeless guy raises his hand, right? So, okay, yes, Jim, what do you, what do you have to say? He said, um, I daily hunger and thirst. No, that's not a strong enough word. I daily crave. No, that's still not a strong enough word. I cannot live without meth. But I want something else. And he sat down. And boy, the room just went, boom, silent. And it was so awesome. These Christ followers at Genesis Covenant Church, we kind of gathered around Jim and we talked to him and we prayed with him. And You see, I, I admire somebody who recognizes that they're, they know exactly what they can't live without. I admire that. I, I know it's rough to even say that, but someone that says, nothing matters to me more than meth, right? Or nothing matters to me more than sports or something like that. And, and at least they know exactly where they stand. What Jesus is saying here is that no matter what you have come to believe will satisfy your soul, nothing will satisfy it permanently except the presence and the power of Jesus in your life. If you are hungry, if you are thirsty, I will be your bread. I will be your drink. Every person experiences hunger and thirst in life. Not just physically, but a hunger in their soul for meaning, value, belonging, and purpose. I mean, every one of us has deep hungers, deep longings. The difference in our world is not that some people are hungry and some people are not. The difference is what are they hungry for? I mean, we're all hungry. It is true for a homeless man or the CEO of Intel. It is true for a prostitute on Van Buren Street 
or a housewife in Oro Valley. It is true for a starving child in a third world country or for our president, Donald Trump. What separates us is not hunger, but what we hunger for. The prophet Amos in the Old Testament tells the Israelites, they pant after the dust of the earth. You're panting after the wrong thing. You're seeking after something that literally is going to fill your mouth and your nostrils with dust so that you can't even breathe. Now, they understood what it meant to be satisfied with the dust of the desert. Are you sure that's what you want? It does not satisfy. Amos 8.11 says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst or water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Isaiah said it this way to those who were seeking after something to fill their souls. In Isaiah 55 too, he says, you're seeking after that which is not bread and does not satisfy. These things that we have come to believe will satisfy status, education, family, religion, sex, prosperity. All dust. Only Jesus satisfies. In John chapter 4, we have this beautiful picture of Jesus meeting this Samaritan woman at a well. Very remarkable in itself because a Samaritan couldn't be around a Jew, a Jew couldn't be around a Samaritan, but Jesus ignored all of those labels. And he went to her and he looked into her heart and he recognized that this woman was hungry and thirsty for physical love for care, for security, for acceptance. She had had five husbands. They'd all died. Now she's living with a man that's not her husband. Jesus looks deep into her heart. And this is what he says. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up into eternal life. He said to this woman, I'll give you water that will swell up into your life and it will actually connect you to eternity. I will give you water that will satisfy you forever. I mean, that's the question you have to answer yourself today. Do you want your thirst quenched? Do you want your hunger sated? Matthew 5, 6 in the message, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. So the question for each of us today is this. Is he enough? Is he enough to satisfy the emptiness of your soul? Is he enough? His presence, the passion that you have just to be with him, the hunger and thirst in your soul to be with him. Francis Chan, who I believe is uh, really one of the modern day prophets in our world today, asks in a sermon this question. Let's say you had everything that heaven had to offer. Everything. No pain. No brokenness. Perfect family, go figure, nobody has that, right? Perfect relationships, no money problems whatsoever, perfect food, 
perfect golf courses if they have golf in heaven, perfect pets, if everything is perfect, everything that heaven has to offer, if that is yours right now, here's his question. If that's the case, would you be satisfied with that if Jesus were not there? I think most people would have to say honestly, yes, because I guess what I want from Jesus is all the things he can provide for me, all the things he can do for me, all the things he can give me. Is he your source, your life, or just what he can provide? Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to close with this uh, true story. Over the years, I've had um, the opportunity, really a great privilege, of being with dozens of people uh, when they passed from this life into the next. As a pastor, I've been at the bedside with many people and seen them take their last breath. This one person in particular, his name was Arnie. Arnie and his wife, Colleen. Uh, Arnie was very sick. Um, he was, uh, they were a very uh, important part of our church in, at Hope. He had come to know Jesus at our men's Bible study and had really drilled in and become a, a true follower of Jesus. And uh, I remember as he was laying in his bed, uh, I was on one side, Colleen was on the other side, holding his hands. And I, I just said, Arnie, is there anything else you'd like to say to Jesus? Um, he, he said, I know it's getting close to my last breath. And he said, yeah, I, I just have a few things I want to say to Jesus. The first thing he said is what we'd all say, Lord, I just want to... I want to make sure that I, my sins are forgiven. And I assured him, the blood of Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. Your sins are forgiven. And then after a few moments, I said, Jesus, take care of my wife and my kids. A few minutes passed. Jesus, this pain in my body is so great. Just relieve this pain in my body. A few minutes passed. Jesus, um, my son doesn't know you. He's not given his heart to you. I pray with all my heart that my son would come to know you. Um, and, you know, now, right now. And then time passed. And then his next prayer was the most beautiful prayer I have ever heard in my life. And it was this. He said, Jesus. A minute later, Jesus. And one more time, Jesus. And then he closed his eyes. Is Jesus, not what he can do, not what he can provide for you, is Jesus enough? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, in this uh, moment, I, I know I'm, I've been asking this all week as I've been working on this message, and I'm asking it again. Lord, I, I want to make sure that, um, that you are enough. I want to make sure that I have not come to believe that there is something else that this little kingdom, this little world has to offer that I have come to believe will satisfy me completely. Because I know deep in my soul, it's just what Arnie prayed, his last prayer, and it was simply Jesus. Nothing else. I don't need anything I don't want anything. I just want to be with Jesus. 
Lord, that's my prayer for my life. I pray that for every listening ear, every heart that is open right now to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would penetrate their hearts if their hearts are hard, a heart of stone, make it a heart of flesh. Like Ezekiel said, Lord, whatever it takes that you would penetrate their heart and help them to understand that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy us completely, only Jesus. Lord, that's my prayer. And I pray that each heart, each listening ear would receive it today. For I pray this in the powerful, majestic, all-loving, grace-filled name of Jesus. Amen.